Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is episode nine of the Remnant podcast with me, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, I'm recording this after I did an interview or a conversation, I should say, since... I ended up hectoring poor Matt Continetti, the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon, for a while. The whole idea of this was to do a pretty hardcore conservative uh, history, conservative ideas, conservative dogma uh, nerd fest. And I think we kind of um, hit the mark for the most part. I have to digest some of it. Um, but I also asked him you know, some really important questions about how he lives with himself um, being the employer of Sonny Bunch and some other things. But you can, if you, if you listen to the end, you'll hear all that. And uh, I just want to say thanks again for listening. We just, just saw this week that the Remnant podcast is, the after just eight episodes, it's, the, it's ranked 58th in iTunes uh, chart of uh, news and politics podcasts. I think we can do a lot better than that, but 58 is great, um, given that we only have eight episodes. Um, we're also creeping up on that thousand review mark that I was uh, really hoping to hit um, purely out of spite for some of uh, my friends. And uh, the one thing I do want to ask you guys, and I'll repeat this at the end, is it's really important if you like the podcast, not just to review it, but it's probably even more important that you subscribe to it on one of the big platforms, whether it's Stitcher or iTunes or whatever, so that it automatically downloads because that then goes into our um, uh, statistics about um, subscribers. We're doing fantastically well on downloads, but a lot of you are getting them from the National Review website rather than subscribing to them in your podcast players or whatever you call them. Um, so if you could do that, I would really appreciate it. It'd be great. It'd be helpful to me. Um, it would save this puppy from a terrible fate. I'm stroking a puppy right now. And uh, um, I really appreciate it. Uh, off we go into this conversation with uh, Matt Continetti from the Washington Free Beacon. <laughs> so as, as I said earlier, uh, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to do just a full-on uh, geek out on conservative theory, scandal, rumor, dogma, doctrine, what, zoology, whatever. And I deliberately picked Matt Continetti to do this because he's sort of like that uh, Andy Garcia character from The Untouchables. When, he, uh, when everyone else is sort of all messed up in the Chicago police force, you got to go to the academy and get them young. So that's sort of what continuity is. Also, you teach some sort of class on this stuff, right? I do, yes. Yeah, the what's Hertog it called? Foundation. And what's it called? Modern, modern conservatism. And the very, very bare bones title, you know, very vague. I leave it deliberately vague so I can all right, so put in whatever I like. Let's uh, take out the scalpel to the vagueness. Where do you peg the beginning of modern conservatism? Well, it's great. I, I now have two weeks uh, to uh, attempt to influence these young minds. And so I divide the course. Each day is a different school or family of conservative thought. And so we begin uh, the first day with the classical liberals, uh -huh. um, kind of following George Nash's trajectory in conservative intellectual movement. Right. Um, so we begin with, with uh, Hayek and Friedman and really kind of the 
publication of Road to Serfdom in 1944, saying this is where modern conservatism began out of the, the catastrophe of the Second World War. And as various intellectuals were trying to understand how did uh, modernity get to this situation of 60 million dead and uh, global conflict and nuclear arms. Okay, so uh, first question. I love the Nash book. Um, I judge people who don't have it on their shelves in not normal people, but weirdos like us, think tank, conservative journalism people. If you haven't read it, it's I, I don't know what's wrong with you. I remember yelling at Rich Lowry because like 15, 20 years ago when he said, yeah, I, you know, I finally got around to reading the Nash book. I said, what's wrong with you? Um, so I love the Nash book. I love George Nash a lot. I think it's a great book, but it's just one narrative about conservatism, right? I mean, um, and there are a lot of people, and one of the problems I think in academia, even though I don't want to take anything away from Nash, because again, I think it's a great book, but there are a lot of people in academia who think that narrative is not only the official narrative, it is the only narrative of the rise of conservatism. Is that how you come down on it? Well, there are a few others. Um, uh, there's Justin Raimondo's book on the old right, which I actually think is an interesting kind of um, complement to the Nash book because it kind of shows you what was going on in conservatism prior to World War II. Mm -hmm. And there are the real differences in the conservative attitude toward internationalism and um, American engagement with the world. Uh, Lee Edwards has a book called The Conservative Revolution, which is uh, similar to Nash, uh, more involved in conservative politics and conservative thought. And that's one transformation we kind of discuss in the course, which is when did conservative thought become conservative politics or indeed even subsumed into conservative politics? Um, and there's also a book, uh, Al Regnery has a book, um, uh, his name escapes me, and there's Jeffrey Hart's book about the ma making of the American conservative mind which is an interesting look at kind of the development of National Review. I, I recommend them all. Yeah, all right, so um, I have not read Justin Raimondo's book, and I will, full disclosure, Ju Justin Raimondo has hated me with a white-hot passion to burn a thousand planets for 20 years, and I don't think about him very much at all one way or the other, but this idea, which you get from people like Raimondo and other people on the sort of paleo-libertarian side, is that there was this coherent thing called the old right, I am not at all convinced that that is true. When I was working on liberal fascism, everyone said, oh, you, you got to read, read J.T. Flynn. J.T. Flynn's the guy, you know, he's the guy who called out the New Deal as fascist and yada, yada, yada. And he was the classic, you know, leader of the old right and all these like, you know, old bulls of conservatism in Washington that I would like go have respectful lunches with and ask, you know, what should I read? And all that kind of stuff. Oh, should I read J.T. Flynn, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'd recommend some other people, but, you know, Flynn wrote for the new republic and was a was a was a passionate sort of muckraking liberal kind of guy um and was utterly rejected by William F Buckley at the beginning of the conservative movement his ideas do not you can't take like my problem is you can't take like Mencken Nock JT Flynn I don't know who were the other superfluous men um um Crundon, John Paso. I mean, there's like this weird group of people. A lot of them were literary. And then try to find a coherent intellectual, ideological theme to that pudding. Even the anti-interventionism stuff. You know, the American uh, the American First Committee, which was J.T. Flynn, led the New York chapter of and was one of the founders of, was not 
ostensibly and obviously a right wing or a conservative thing. It had, you know, JFK was a supporter of American America first. Uh, his dad, when he wasn't, you know, running rum, was a fan of America first. I just don't know that. So I guess what I'm saying is or I'm asking is what evidence would you provide that the old right is an actual thing rather than this sort of romantic fiction of the titans of yore that the perfidious Jews and anti-communists stole from us um, in the 1950s? Maybe we have to subtract the term conservatism from our discussion. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. And so we talk about the old right as a phenomenon of the right. And uh, it's just the case that uh, the right at that time, prior to World War II, really saw itself in opposition not only to the domestic policies of the New Deal, but also to the foreign policies of the New Deal. And, um, and as, you, as you allude to in, in, in your comment, was also, um, you know, uh, in many cases, anti-Semitic. There's yeah. no question about it. And so once we move to the conservative intellectual mo- movement that happened after the Second World War, all those, those three things uh, slowly are kind of drained away right. from, from the right in America. And the irony of my course, and I like to joke that I, I give the students a beginning, middle, and end, is that slowly they've been kind of leaking back in, <laughs> in the last uh, <laughs> 10, uh, especially last two years. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. Um, all right, so we should give a little background to listeners because we, we jumped right into this. You're the editor of the Washington Free Beacon, which some would say is a uh, um, one of the sharper points in the arsenal of neoconservatism. Do you consider yourself a neocon? And how would you define a neocon if you do? Or don't. I don't care. You know, I don't know what I consider myself anymore, Jonah. Um, I, I've often thought of the neocon. You still consider yourself a conservative? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right, so we can work from, we can do this Socratically. <laughs> Are I you a conservative? conservative. <laughs> okay. I have a conservative. Um, the neoconservatives uh, have had the largest impact on my thinking. And so, I, and I generally I agree with neoconservatism um, uh, that in its totality, because I think we have to distinguish between what I call neoconservatism one right. and then neoconservatism two, which is the post-Cold War um, basically foreign policy. Uh, but even there, I largely agree. So yeah, I'm, I'm more or less a neoconservative. It's hard for someone my age, I'm 36, to describe themselves as neoconservative because, you know, was I a liberal in college? Sure. Right. But I didn't have any one of these moments where the, uh, you know, I gradually became more conservative. I encountered certain texts in college that basically um, opened my eyes, so to speak. And then, of course, I was also one of those conservatives who was changed by 9-11, right, which right. happened while I was a junior. So, yeah, more or less, I'm a neocon, and uh, I think Free Beacon is basically that, too. Um, so I had a rant about neoconservatism on here a few days ago, or a few episodes ago. I don't need to get too deep in the weeds again on that. But, all right, so here's, I, I will put forward a gripe to you, and then you will you will process it as you see fit, Okay. The old definition of a neocon was a former communist, usually a Trotskyite, right, sometimes a um, social democrat, right, who, as Irving Kristol put it, was a liberal who was mugged by reality and moves right, right. And so the original ones were an alcove one at City University. And alcove one not being some grand school of thought. It wasn't the school of Athens. It was, in fact, like a cubicle in the cafeteria at City University for a bunch of young people, right? And these guys move right. And... 
if you read like the Raimondo crowd, I'm not sure if it's actually Raimondo, but if you read that crowd, the sort of paleo libertarian crowd, they will say things like um, the quote unquote neocons have never let go of their Trotskyism, right? Now, my guess is you, you say you were a liberal in college, but I'm, my guess is you weren't a Trotskyite, right? Okay. So, and maybe had only a vague understanding of what that meant to be a Trotskyite. Sure. Okay. So, um, one of the things that drives me crazy is this, and as you can tell, I hold paper on some of these things a little too tightly. So if the old definition was Jewish, even though some of them weren't Jewish, but right, so Jewish, former communist, um, who then moves rightward, uh, Nash actually wrote this great paper about the, the, the Jews in the original National Review conservative movement, right? Well, I never, so, so Irving Kristol, who we should do, we should be clear, is a hero of mine and is Matt's grandfather-in-law. Is that correct? If that's a term. Yeah. Sure. Um, also a hero of mine. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, Matt wrote a wonderful piece, wonderful column last week for the Free Beacon. It was later up on NRO, citing a lot of Irving, and I sent him an email, and that's what gave us the idea of doing this thing. So, so Irving was, and you probably know better than I do, but a fairly peripheral communist. Right. I mean, he was not a major figure in American communism. He was not known as a leading socialist intellectual. Right. Um, and same thing with, I don't know, Seymour Martin Lipset. Who are the other ones in the alcove? Uh, oh, uh, Daniel Bell. Daniel Bell. Right. He was you know? never a conservative. Right. right. And and just a sort of curmudgeonly socialist. Right. Who moved a couple clicks rightward from there. Right. right? Meanwhile, among the heroes of the founding fathers of National Review, you have Whitaker Chambers, a very highly ranked communist spy in America. Right. You had James Burnham, who was Lenin's, or was Trotsky's literary agent in America, and I believe his translator, uh, who was the one-time editor of the Daily Work English language Daily Worker. You had what's his name? Meyer. Uh, Frank Meyer was a prominent communist. You have an enormous number of ex-communists. Um, some of them, like Meyer, some of them uh, also Jewish or of Jewish background, and yet who are among the founders and, and intellectual lodestars of the National Review early Buckley era. And in fact, if you go through the masthead, the I, I don't want to say that I, I can't do it by memory and I'm bad at math, but it seems to me that a sizable chunk, if not an, a plurality, were former communists or, or socialists of one way or the other. None of them ever gets called a neocon. And I cannot find the appreciable difference between, say, Irving Kristol's conservatism and the conservatism of James Burnham or Frank Meyer to one extent. I mean, obviously, there are doctrinal, fun, interesting differences. But you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, Irving's way to the left of those guys. And you wouldn't say Irving's way to the right of those guys. I just I think neocon from the beginning was a description of a sociological movement of a sort of milieu of a certain bunch of people who were late arrivals. Nash calls them in the original editions of the book right wing liberals. And then he calls them retroactively neocons in the newer editions. But I just don't get it. I mean, I, I, and so when Bill Bennett, who was a neocon, right, of the later generation, no one, you know, because he's Catholic and because he's this avuncular guy, um, um, people kind of forget that he was actually one of the neocons most hated by the haters of neoconservatism for a long time. And so anyway, I just think it's 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 this word that has just lost its utility to describe things except as a historical phenomenon. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot in there uh, in what you say. I, mean, I have a few th thoughts that strike me. First is, um, you know, National Review was viewed skeptically by a lot of uh, 
libertarians. Sure. Precisely for the reason you lay out, which is that its masthead was filled with, with several Jews and uh, many anti-communists. And this lent National Review from the very beginning a hawkish attitude toward foreign policy right. that many of the people who had been part of, say, uh, the, the Freeman mm-hmm. um, and then the American Mercury, which Buckley repudiated pretty early on, they they were uh, incensed. So this kind of um, suspicion of people who had been former communists or Marxists um, is very longstanding. Uh, the second, on Burnham is the most interesting, as you point out, um, probably the second to Crystal, the, the most important thinker, uh, in my mind anyway, um, of this whole milieu. And um, not only was he Trotsky's agent in America right. and high up, but his he was kind of a um, a precursor of neoconservatism because right. he not only um, rejected Marxism, uh, but he was also embedded in kind of the literary intellectual community of New York. He right. was a New York intellectual. The partisan review crowd. And fascinatingly, one of the real break for Burnham was his qualified defense of Joe McCarthy. Mm-hmm. If you recall, Irving Kristol always said that the most controversial article he ever wrote was his quasi-defense right. of McCarthy in commentary in 1952. So this Just is- so listeners know, the, the, the thing we're talking about here is Irving wrote, uh, the one thing the American people know about, I'm paraphrasing, but the one thing the American people know about uh, Joseph McCarthy is that he is anti-communist. About his liberal critics, they know no such thing. And that was, um, that was in intellectual circles, sort of like Barry Goldwater's extremism and the defense of liberty line. It just that the context was so inflammatory, even though like looking back on it, it's just like, okay, that's an interesting observation. But it's, you know, um, but it was explosive at the time. It was explosive at the time. Now, Crystal used to say that the one thing that really came of his Trotskyism was his marriage. And so he, <laughs> he met his wife of um, some six decades uh, at a Trotskyist meeting um, in Brooklyn. But that was basically it. He had basically left... Trotskyism um, by the time he left college. There yeah. was, it wasn't really there. And it was especially his experience in the Second World War that kind of convinced him that there's no way socialism could work, human beings being what we are. It's, that's where you got the idea that religion is really, really important, right? Yeah. Even if it wasn't necessarily... Well, he, he, you know, he says uh, in several places that he always felt religion was important, even though his uh, family was uh, not particularly religious. I mean, they kept a kosher home, like many Jewish immigrants, um, but he did he his mother died when he was relatively young and he says uh in some place that he still went to shul and and prayed kaddish for her mm-hmm. even though he, no one told him to so he described himself as theotropic always right, right right and indeed his religious sensibility was one thing that probably made him a very uh, uneasy marxist mm-hmm. uh to begin with i think one of the reasons that neocon as you say is kind of a useless term today is um, it became a caricature to describe basically supporters of the Iraq War right. uh, in the, over the last decade. And so it's, that drained it of all of its kind of history and, um, and, and real content um, to the point where it just becomes whatever I don't like right. is a neocon. So I agree uh, it should be abandoned um, unless you're talking conservative history, which is... I spent a lot of time talking about. Yeah, no, but I, I, as a historical label, I think it's entirely valid. You know, like I wish there was active Whig Party today. You know, I'm interested in starting one, 
But we don't talk about people being wigs today because people don't know what it means and it's just whatever. But as a historical label, it's an important label that you have to understand the past through. Yeah, I would say that, you know, Crystal used to describe neoconservatism uh, not as an ideology or dogma, but what he called as a persuasion, which was kind of right. a, a set of attitudes and uh, ideas that kind of surfaced over time. So I do think, and one of the reasons why I, I, I said I'm happy to be called a, a neoconservative, is I, I do think those attitudes and ideas and sensibilities are important and actually do apply to our our time as much as they applied to the 1960s, 1970s. So, okay, but let me ask you that. I, sure. because, but I, I like the neocon persuasion frame, and I, I like the idea of conservatism being a persuasion or a temperament, right, as, as much as anything else, although I think it's also an ideology. So substantially, uh, neoconservatism, qua neoconservatism, right? I mean, the, 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 the platonic ideal of sort of distilled Irving Crystallism and Michael Novakism and and, you know, pick your next three or four neocons. How is it different than conventional conservatism? In many respects, it's, it's, it's very hard to define the difference. And what Crystal said was that the differences only emerge at certain moments of contention. And one of those moments of contention was the Bush, uh, the George W. Bush presidency. I think one of the largest ways is uh, Irving Crystal's reservation of that final cheer for capitalism. He gave two cheers to capitalism, not three, because he said capitalism is provides the best amount of individual freedom consistent with public order. It enriches us. But the missing, the missing cheer is because it doesn't tell us how to live. And so I think his critique of a lot of business conservatism or economic conservatism was that it was just anti-statist full stop. It didn't have a lot to say about culture, about religion, about these other supports of civil society. Um, then there is the fact that what we see after the end of the Cold War, there becomes a difference between neoconserv some neoconservative thinkers and some more traditional conservative thinkers over the place of the United States in, in the post-Cold War order. Sure. Now, it gets very complicated because, as always, and as you suggest, it's always – you can't really reduce the neoconservative school because there were disagreements even within it. But one of the – one school of thought uh, represented by figures like Elliot Abrams and Robert Kagan and uh, Bill Kristol and, and the contributors basically to this collection called Present Dangers, which mm -hmm. came out in 2000, was, you know, the United States needed to take much, much more active – role in the post-Cold War world and even embrace concepts like uh, humanitarian intervention and regime change, as well as democracy promotion, that the more traditional conservatives and even some of the older neoconservatives uh, were, were very skeptical of. Yeah. So again, but that's my, it gets to my point that, that using the term, I mean, like even Bill Kristol, right? You're citing Bill Kristol, uh, your father-in-law, as a example of this this strain of neoconservative thinking that even Bill Kristol didn't call neoconservative. He called neo-Reaganite in that essay in Foreign Affairs, right? Sure. And um, I agree entirely with Irving about the importance of uh, the missing last cheer for capitalism. But that is a point that you will find in, in Wilmore Kendall and Russell Kirk and a lot of traditionalist, supposedly not neocon thinkers. And... And it's a and it's a point that you will at the same time not find in a lot of neocon thinkers. I mean, my point is, is that it, like, it, if you just say, okay, we're going to separate the wheat from the chaff on who the neocons are and who aren't, 
you're 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 just going to end up with two messy piles that don't make a lot of sense. And uh, but we should probably stop belaboring this because I I think I am probably the only obsessive on this stuff um, in America. Um, I just maybe it's because during the Iraq War period, um, I I could not believe how I mean I used to keep a sort of little file on the misuses of the word neocon where Tom Delay. The Koch brothers, you know, we're all called Dick neocons. Cheney, Dick right. Cheney, right? They're all called neocons, and it just simply became, you know, it's sort of like Orwell's thing about how fascism, fascism has simply come to mean anything not desirable. That's what neoconservatism had to mean, and this idea that everyone was a, um, you know, that Leo Strauss was the Tulsa doom of this weird right wing snake cult um, that made us all these bagel snarfing warmongers. I just thought was so infuriating, particularly when you listen to, like, Chris Matthews talk about this stuff, and it got really McCarthyite really quickly. But we should probably get off of that. I want to go back to the beginning of the founding conservatism thing. So one of the things a lot of people don't understand is that basically conservatism, in, as, as a major philosophical school, is one of the last entrants in the field, right? Libertarianism exists, although I would put it this way. Libertarianism far predates modern American conservatism as a real ideology. I remember the, the, for the 65th anniversary issue of NR, they wanted me to write a piece called Who Lost the Libertarians? Because he saw all these libertarians going left, right? And that's a big thing. I'm happy to talk about it. And as I thought about it, and as you read through it, it turns out you could fairly say there would be a, it would, you could make a better case for Reason Magazine running a piece, Who Lost the Conservatives, Right. Because conservatives come very late in all this. And as you say, you start your course with the classical liberals. The classical liberals being Hayek and Milton Friedman and, and you're telling and Nash is telling. But those guys go all the way back. I mean, that tradition goes back to Adam Smith. It goes back to Burke. It goes back to the Enlightenment. It goes back to pre-Enlightenment. And then Herbert Spencer is a big guy. And meanwhile, the creation of the conservative political tradition in America is really this weird project that starts in the 40s and 50s. And... But if you talk to the average kid who goes to a YAF conference, they think because they like the past, that means American conservatism is the oldest tradition. And it's, it's just not. It's actually a really new addition um, to things. Well, you find this a lot with, um, you know, I, I always like to say, uh, you know, which is older, Reform Judaism or Orthodoxy? Right. Well, Reform, because prior to Reform, there was no Orthodoxy. It was similar, too, with right, the, right, in, the Catholic, in the Catholic context, you know. There was what was Catholicism before the Reformation. You needed the you needed the right. advance to kind of define uh, what the tradition was, and so you could say that American conservatism really came out of a revolution, a reaction to a revolution, and the revolution was in the the change of the relationship between citizen and the state uh, that was a consequence of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And so just to, I, I know we don't want to belabor this, but one difference between the neoconservatives and the traditional conservatives is in their attitude toward the New Deal and much more, in Irving Kristol's case, much more accepting of basic, the basic That's fair. sentiment of the New Deal than certainly uh, William F. Buckley Jr. and the National Review conservatives were. In, and there's a line in Buckley's opening um, publisher's statement of National Review where he said, well, is there... Can you even be a conservative if you don't oppose the New Deal? Yeah. And that's something – so I think the, the, the conservative intellectual movement that we study and that we're a part of uh, is really a reaction to 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, domestic policy, I'll, even if it embraced some aspects of his foreign policy. I'll, I'll push back on that slightly. I think that this gets to the sociological part of it. The, the generation of National Review followers had a relationship towards the New Deal that was very similar to the neocons' relationship to the Great Society. And so the neocons who come in, are, they're all rebelling against how stupid is the Great Society. We need to be like you know, these sort of Burkean liberals and defend what was good with the Great Society, with the New Deal, but liberalism is going off the rails with the Great Society. The guys who founded around National Review thought, hey, you know, America was going pretty well um, after World War I, which is interesting as a side note. When I was working on liberal fascism and I discovered all this, discovered for me, I'm not saying I had original archival research on this, but when I discovered that Woodrow Wilson sucks um, and did all sorts of terrible things and the New Deal is just an extension of, the, of, of World War I war socialism under Wilson, I was stunned to find out that there was nary a peep about any of that in the archives of National Review. And so in a lot of ways... Those guys had grown up or were kids and were nostalgic for the era of World War I, open displays of patriotism, the good Red Scares, yada, yada, yada. And so their relationship to, to that era was, oh, my gosh, things are now going off the rails with the New Deal. The, old, the younger guys were, who became neoconservatives were like, oh, my God, things are going off the rails with the Great Society. And they had a nostalgia for the New Deal era. I'm not sure it's a philosophical schism as much as you may think it is, but it's a perfectly fair point that like Irving had no problem with Social Security, had no problem with entitlement programs. Irving was wrong. I know that's, I, I, we're fortunately recording this below ground so lightning bolts can't get me. The earth is um, still shaking, <laughs> say that. But anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you again. So this idea of which comes first liberalism. Right. right. So, right. So as conservatism reacting to the, the New Deal, and I even should say some aspects of FDR's foreign policy, you know, because remember, the fundament of uh, the conservative intellectual movement was its anti-communism. Right. And so for conservatives, the real, not only was the New Deal domestically a kind of a betrayal of the American tradition uh, as embodied in the founding, um, but f Roosevelt at Yalta, Mm -hmm. where basically Roosevelt um, succumbed or uh, was nonchalant about Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe was a real betrayal right. to the uh, American anti-communists. And so they're very much opposed to all that. And one of the difficulties of conservatism today, uh, as, I've, as I study this, and of course I was very young when it, when it happened, but I don't, I don't think conservatism really ever found its footing after the fall of the Soviet Union. And um, the more I think about this, actually, I, I, I lay a lot of responsibility, and maybe the ground will shake when I say this, uh, I lay a lot of the responsibility on Ronald Reagan himself. Because mm -hmm. Reagan failed to choose a successor. And if you look at, I, I disagree with a lot of the revisionists who are trying to drive a wedge between Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater. Bar Goldwater and Reagan existed in a tradition. And there's a, uh, an interview I just recently came across where Ronald Reagan says that Barry Goldwater was the John the Baptist of the conservative movement. Right. He doesn't say who that makes him in that analysis, <laughs> but it's implied, clearly. And yet Reagan chose, um, mainly out of prudential considerations in, in 1980, uh, George H.W. Bush, right. the scion of the Eastern Establishment Republicanism, which con the conservative movement had already always been opposed to, as his vice president and eventual successor. And I think... I think that choice, even though it was reasonable at the time, um, 
kind of set in motion a, a confusion that persists to this day about, well, what do we do post-Reagan? What do we do as conservatives once the Soviet Union is no longer right. on the scene? Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. I mean, that's now 25 years in the past. So we're, <laughs> we've kind of figured it out, right, through yeah. fits and starts. We still exist. We're still here. But I think it lends itself to a lot of, of the inner Nicene conflict you see on the right today, which, I mean, just – and also kind of a um, – it used to be that uh, during the Cold War, um, but for the people that Buckley kind of walled off from the intellectual movement, um, the Randians, the Rothbardians, the, Bircher. the Birchers, there was – other than those guys – there was a lot of internal debate with the National Review. Yeah. Now, because of changes in the media and also, I think, changes in, like I say, global politics and conservative politics, we don't really have a lot of running battles or, or, or civil debates in between the various schools of conservatism. It's mainly just every, every man, woman, and, you know, two-spirit for himself. You know, everybody's trying to go and, and try to define their own thing. And so that makes it even hard to talk, I mean, much less discuss what neoconservatism is. It right. sometimes makes it hard to talk about what conservatism is. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've written these columns saying the great strength of the conservative movement is that we argue about our dogma, right? And that the, the left is actually far more dogmatic because the real test of a successful dogma is to take it for granted and never question it, right? And because uh, dogma comes from the Greek meaning seems good, right? It's just that thing that you just take as the natural order of things. I have a dogmatic faith that gravity works, right? And um, for the left, and that's why all the debates on the left are always about strategies for power um, rather than first principles about anything, right? And that's led inexorably to this identity politics nonsense. But on the right, you know, we're dorks. And we would have, I, mean, I grew up in dorky 1990s Washington where, you know, I would go to debates and panel discussions and arguments about libertarianism versus conservatism. And, you know, my Edmund Burke tie is better than your, you know, Adam Smith tie. And I'm a, it was like Dungeons and, Dungeons and Dragons geek stuff. I'm a level nine Hayekian and all that kind of stuff. And I miss that. And I always thought that was one of the great sources of strength of conservatism was that we had these great, robust internal debates. And, you know, Andy Ferguson had that profile of George Will about a month ago in The Standard, and George put it pretty well. He said, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that Fox News has been really bad for um, journalism and really great for conservatism. And I think, and he says, I think it gets it exactly backwards. There are a lot of great journalists at Fox, and I can attest that there are. But any, as he puts it, any movement where Sean Hannity is the definer of and leader of conservatism is in real trouble. And I could not, and like I'm a Fox News contributor, full disclosure, I could not agree with that more. <laughs> um, this, you know, the Roy Moore stuff that we're watching unfold as we speak, where you see Christian pastors, you know, who are allegedly leaders of the, you know, evangelical right, a group, a demographic that I have defended for 25 years, now basically making the argument, well, a little statutory rape is fine. You know, it, de it depends how, what they were wearing is the kind of thing that just makes you cast your eye. Remember that scene in, in Braveheart where uh, Mel Gibson's first girlfriend is like tied up and they're about to execute her and she's just, her eyes are just scanning the horizon looking for Mel Gibson to come save her and he doesn't come. That's me. When I read stuff like that, 
that's me looking for the sweet meteor of death to put us all out of our misery. Because I talk about like, like again, I like questioning dogma. I like arguing about dogma. But some stuff should be buried under so many miles of granite, you know, skeins of, of bedrock. And one of them is conservative, conservative Christian pastors shouldn't be making all sorts of rationalizations for statutory rape. You, you know, think. Yeah, they're just, it's just me. I mean, I'm a wacky guy, you know. <laughs> and so I think one of the problems that conservatism said, and I know you're more of a defender of populism than I am, um, then again, Pretty much everybody is more of a defender of populism than I am because I can't stand it. But it seems to me that this is the the fundamental corruption of conservatism is when it gives over to pandering to what the largest common denominator wants to hear. There, I mean, um, and it, it says it, it harkens back to what you were saying about the left kind of being driven just by strategies of power too, right? I mean, so many of the defenses of Judge Moore, it's like, well, we, we need, need that vote, vote for yeah. tax reform, right. so. This is this debate, and I, I think you know we're making all these distinctions, and I like drawing distinctions. Like I said, you have the conservative intellectual movement, and then you find, paradoxically, early on with um, with Buckley's run for mayor of New York City in '65, and then with Reagan's first gubernatorial campaign in '66, you find that actually the support for the ideas of the conservative intellectual movement don't come from other intellectuals. What they come is for basically. Um, hard hats, yeah, and and people living in in rural areas and uh, in the New York City context, basically ethnics, um, right. uh, blue collar Catholic voters, and so the paradox has been that that this intellectual movement kind of depends on its support among people who are not intellectuals, and that that uh, irony, which we see visible in the mid nineteen sixties, has only grown over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing is I, uh, I'm always fascinated by as I research National Review is these debates were present um, much – I mean uh, not only during the McCarthy period, though, though generally National Review was, was pro-McCarthy. But we had big splits among our universe of people sure. about all that. The key thing, if you want splits, was when George Wallace arrived yeah. on the scene. Yeah. And, and there, so many of the debates that take place in the pages of National Review over George Wallace are – entirely similar to the debates that are happening on websites or in social media about Donald Trump. Yeah. And um, fascinatingly, the figures who end up on base on kind of the paleo side of the equation or kind of the the, the anti-neocon side, right, whatever that means, um, of the equation in 2016 were already there in 1968-72. And you have yeah. somebody like Mel Bradford writing in the pages of National Review that no, this is it. Wallace, Wallace is the future, and we have to the ideal ticket. I think Jeffrey Hart actually uh, said that the ideal ticket would be um, either Wallace Reagan or Reagan Wallace yeah. in seventy yeah. two. So this populism has been there from the very beginning, and it's caused it's caused a lot of disagreement and tension among the conservative intellectuals for fifty years. I came across recently George Will's first cover story for National Review in nineteen sixty nine was a brutal uh, critique of George Wallace. And, of course, he could write that same story and has about Donald Trump today. Yeah. I think a big change that has made the problem all, all the more acute, as you, as you recognize, is uh, changes in media. And I think if one of the... Other than the development of National Review, in 19, founding of National Review in 1955, uh, kind of the 
coming of the neoconservatives in 65 with the public interest and then the, or in the early 70s as Norman Podhoretz moved back, uh, moved to the right. Um, if we look at the development of the conservative intellectual movement, Rush Limbaugh's going national in 1988 is probably the most significant event, pro- more significant, I think, even than Fox News in 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just in, in terms of finding a mass yeah. audience and then also, you know, risking capture by that audience. Right, uh, which has been the the temptation and um, and uh, the hazard uh, of the conservatives for decades. Yeah, well, you, I mean, Rush in the last year has now said that he's never asked anybody to vote. How to? He never. He's never told his listeners how to vote, and then he never claimed to be a conservative, which are interesting positions given Rush's you know history. No, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, I always tell people, you know, people say, well, "Why isn't National Review, you know, playing its historic role of?" of policing the right and all that kind of stuff. And I always say, well, we are. The problem is is that the the media and institutional landscape has changed so profoundly. You know, it used to be with William F. Buckley, if he said you're beyond the pale, well, then you're just not going to get on Meet the Press, right? And if you're not on Meet the Press or Face the Nation or This Week or whatever the shows are, there are no other shows to go on. That's it, because you only got like four freaking channels, right? And that's why... In the old days, so much of the sort of more toxic elements of the populist right were relegated to not talk radio. This is pre-talk radio. They were relegated to newsletters, right? You know, basically like, you know, and Ron Paul's newsletter was one of the last of that sort of genre. And, and now, because of the Internet, because of cable TV, you know, you can say that the Weekly Standard and National Review and Washington Free Beacon and and, and – name whatever other, you know, institutions you want, are gatekeepers. But the problem is all the walls <laughs> have come down. It's not like we're, we're standing under this free end gate. It's like, this gate. You yeah. shall not pass. And meanwhile, it's just like open wall from C to signing C. And it just makes it much more difficult to play anything like that kind of role. You know, I mean, in, in the old days, you know, where would Bannon go? Where would Milo go? You know, and now they just create their own websites. They create their own platforms. And as a free market guy, I'm not going to say that that shouldn't happen. But as a conservative, I think every good thing comes with a downside and every bad thing comes with an upside. And and there are downsides to the situation that we're in. You know, it's interesting about Bannon, just a side note. I've been reading up on him and he seems to really enjoy having biographies of himself published. There's Uh two in the last year, one by Josh Green and another by Keith Koffler that just came out from Regnery. In all of those, when you study about Bannon, he has... No references to the American conservative tradition. Mm-hmm. His references are all European yeah. reactionary thinkers. And what to me is that this is, as someone who studies this movement and the, the intellectuals involved, with, this is so foreign mm-hmm. from what we're used to that I think it might have taken us by a little bit of surprise. Right. And kind of not only were not only are there no more walls, but even our defenses were down. Right. Right. Like, like we, no, we were playing we're, cards. Exactly. <laughs> you know? we're, we're arguing about, you know, oh, the difference between between traditionalists and right. classical liberals and freedom versus virtue. And meanwhile, right. you have kind of this um, anti uh, I don't even know what it is. Um, it's definitely anti liberal. It's almost anti liberal, right? Mm. I mean, kind of in 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 its in its attack, not on liberalism. Its attack on 
John Locke. Right. You know, real liberalism. The American founding, right? I mean, at, Enlightenment liberalism, a classical liberalism. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so this is something that I don't think conservatives were prepared for and, and have yet to kind of, we're only beginning now to respond to it. And I, I would just point the listener to uh, Ramesh Panuro has a very good piece in the new issue of National Review about this. Um, and Robert Riley, actually, in the Claremont Review books, also had this uh, had an essay kind of taking on the this new phenomenon on the right. Yeah. Of there, and again, this is why Rush Limbaugh saying, "Oh, he's not a conservative." It, it, again, it, what? Who is a conservative now? These thinkers are saying, "No, the whole problem is, goes back from the very beginning. It goes it goes back even before the American founding." And as a conservative, and I am a conservative. Well, no, the American founding is exactly what I support. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and that was that was why Buckley and the other founders of National Review were opposed to the New Deal. It, it was like, oh, that was betraying the founding. Now you have this phenomenon of the right, of which Bannon, I think, is a part, where where it's, no, there's something much deeper and uh, more just weirder for me because I've never encountered thinkers like uh, Julius Evola or... Uh, Rene Guénon, who mm -hmm. figures so prominently in these biographies. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think Bannon is one of the most singularly overrated political figures of our of our time. But I think you're right that he represents a certain kind of movement. Which I mean, it, it's it's interesting. So I've always argued that conservative modern American conservatism is um, more than simply classical liberalism. But modern American conservatism that doesn't conserve classical American liberalism, cla classical liberalism isn't worth conserving, right? I mean, it's like if you, if you take that out, all you're left with is for the most part some platitudes about nationalism, some, some banalities, some benign sentiments, and more than a few irritable mental gestures, as, as uh, what is it? Uh, Trilling. Trilling puts it. And the thing that holds the whole kit and caboodle together is this classical liberal thing which comes out of the founding and is... As much as anything, I, I'm, I, I no longer believe in fundaments for conservatism. I think it's more a bunch of checklists, and you need a necessary ingredient. You know, you have to defend the West, but the, you know, defending the, which West? You're, you're talking about, you know, Greece or France or Italy or Spain, right? You got to defend the Constitution, but it can't just be about the Constitution. You got to defend the founding, but it can't be just the founding. It's got to be a bunch of stuff. I'm against one thingism and everything, um, and but so. You know, the I used to, for bizarre reasons, do these regular debates with libertarians um, for uh, not ISI, but one of those other groups, uh, AFF, America's Future Fund, mm -hmm. right? And they were fun. They were interesting. I used to debate libertarians about, you know, conservatism and libertarianism. And, and the thing that would always get thrown in my face, which even Milton Friedman would do in letters to the editor of National Review is they would always quote the title of Friedrich Hayek's essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, right? And what they never do is actually quote from the actual essay. It's just the friggin' headline, right? Which is, shows you that some of these techniques predate Twitter. Um, and um, if you actually read the essay, what Hayek goes on to say is that America is the one place in the entire world where you can call yourself a conservative and still be a defender of liberty, because what we're trying to conserve are the principles of the American founding, which was a revolution for liberty. And all the conservatives he's talking about are these blood and altar guys in Europe, like De Meist and Bonald, or I can't even remember. And so he's talking about blood and soil nationalists and, throne, and altar and throne 
you know, conservatives and ultramontane people and all that stuff. He's not talking about Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton when he's talking about conservatives, and he's not talking about William F. Buckley. And I've always thought that this was like the, the, the crucial thing about why American conservatism is so different from every place else. And um, it's also why I still think, unless the larger trends have so messed up America, that ultimately the Bannon Project will fail. Because, um, you know, this country had a revolution not to be like Europe. People, it's peopled by people who left places like Europe because they didn't want to be in Europe. The whole point of the Warner Sombart thing about, you know, why is there no socialism in America is predicated on the fact that we're just weird and we don't dig that stuff. And Bannon's theory of sort of European nationalism that he wants to impose here not only runs against that tradition among conservatives, bourgeois, white, middle-class people and all the rest, it also completely runs against everything that the identity politics left believes in. You know, I mean, the identity politics left says that, you know, Europe and Europeanism and Western civilization, these are just all systems of oppression by the pale penis people. And there's no way that we can ever, you know, be free in a society that worships those kinds of things. And meanwhile, there's still a lot of conservatives who say, you know, we're not Europeans, we're Americans. And that's the most dismaying thing is that this whole conversation about American exceptionalism has just vanished, even though it was a very serious intellectual, you know, and, and, and sociological argument that had nothing to do with sort of jingoism. It was a much more sort of sociological argument that people like, you know, Seymour Martin Lipset made about why we are just an outlier in all sorts of things, good things and bad things from, from sort of free market stuff to violence. And um, it's been devolved into this sort of what Donald Trump's American exceptionalism is because they think the word exceptional is a compliment, right? Oh, you're exceptional, pat you on the head, right? And it's not what it means. It means different, right? And um, it's, that's been completely lost in these conversations and conservatives need to get back on that stuff or we're in a hot mess. I would add just one element to, the, to that picture, which is, I mean, uh, in addition to the American founding, you kind of you have this other tradition or persuasion in American politics, which is the Jacksonian persuasion, right. which is similar to Jefferson and actually does kind of feed off of certain aspects of the American exceptionalism you mentioned in terms of the, the basically this idea of self-government and not being ruled from above, but driving America from below. Uh, you know, to the extent that American, in my view, to the extent that the populist movement is Jacksonian. I actually do think it's within the American grain. Now, there are, off, there are also ugly aspects to it, just like we say that there are ugly aspects to changes in the media or whatever. But there are also it's also very much um, part of the American political tradition. Now, if that's so easily confused with kind of the things that people on the alt-right are talking about, which is, you know, blood and soil, and that, you're absolutely the case, is foreign to America. There's no, there, there's no question about it. But I do think we should keep in mind that that Trump uh, in particular is drawing off of, whether he recognizes it or not, this kind of Jacksonian um, persistent revolt against the elites in our society, which, you know, I mean, I believe was part of Reagan's victory in, in 1980, um, uh, even if it wasn't so demotic and, and often vulgar. Okay, that's all, that's all fair, you know. And again, these debates about the proper role of populism. The problem is, is that populism used to be channeled through responsible institutions, and so that's why I I, I think 
the the signature uh, event, you know, one, you know, I know Chow and Lai didn't actually say it, but you know that whole thing about he was asked about the French Revolution and he says it's too soon to tell, right? Um, you can go back and you can always find some earlier precipitating cause that, you know, I mean, like Richard Weaver always used to blame everything of Joachim of Fiore, the ninth century Gnostic monk, or maybe it was 11th century, whatever. Um, but I think the most important, you know, John Podoritz says that, that the breakdown in trust in institutions begins with the Catholic Church pedophilia scandals. Fine, fine argument. I think the precipitating cause for the, the, the state of populism on the right is um, the failure of the Tea Parties and the treatment of the Tea Parties. It wasn't so much, so they failed. Okay, that's too bad. But, you know, you know, political movements fail. And they had a lot of successes. They got a lot of guys elected. I and mean, I'm not saying it was a complete disaster. It was the only populist movement I ever endorsed because I thought it was the right, if you're going to have a populist reaction, the idea of rising up to live within our means, to live according to the Constitution, to get back to basics, right? That is the only kind of populism I could possibly endorse because I can't stand populism. You know, not counting things like the abolition movement, right? You know, and so even though these guys, some of their their favorite leaders were, were African-American, even though these guys went out of their way to sort of, you know, not counting the occasional idiot sort of hothead in some crowd that the media goes and finds, to say that these are inclusive principles for everybody, the American creed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they really were a very patriotic movement in the best sense of it. They weren't nationalist. And they still got called fascists and racists by the mainstream media. They were still demonized. They were still ridiculed and caricatured and lied about, that whole thing that Andrew got into, about the spitting on the black congressman, which wasn't true. And the takeaway of it from, from this sort of just absolutely scandalous maltreatment or mistreatment of the Tea Parties was a kind of psychic break that led to this Flight 93 election logic, which said, we're going to get demonized anyway. This country's already gone the way of identity politics. Um, so we need our own identity politics. We need our own nationalism. Nationalism is identity politics, if you understand it as a historical force. Um, you know, Germany for the Germans. It's friggin' identity politics, going back to the romantic nationalism of the 1800, early 1800s in the response to, the, you know, the Enlightenment. And... And so all of a sudden, there was this great surrender to the logic of the left of, if you can't beat them, join them. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to care about power, not about principles, right? That's what the Flight 93 election thing is about. The whole thing came down to, we, they don't care about principles, but they use our principles against us to make us look like fools. So we're not going to do that anyway. Every day I get another email from somebody about Roy Moore saying, I don't know why we have to have unilateral surrender. If they're not going to get rid of their sex offenders, why should we get rid of ours, right? And that logic has now corrupted vast swaths of the right. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. And I don't know that there's any way you unwind that except with time and patience because I don't, I, you can't argue people out of their rage. You kind of have to let the rage work its course. I, I agree. You know, I mean um... – I've worked for many years at the Weekly Standard magazine, and um, when the Weekly Standard had its thousandth issue, I, I wrote a piece about, um, well, what, what did the Weekly Standard really stand for? I mean, it's known for its positions on foreign policy, but what I, what I found, and I've read every issue, is it's really about morality. Yeah. And that's kind of this idea that morality and character matter. Uh, not only informed the foreign policy, but also informed the domestic policy of the Weekly Standard, including its support for impeaching President Clinton in the 1990s. 
I think we have, and I, the piece that you mentioned that I wrote last week kind of alluded to this. I think the right, and of course, large America in general, <laughs> has lost sight of this idea of morality mattering. Right. Um, and and you know the 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 conservative critics who 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 say, oh well, you know, the left g- gave up on it. They're like half right. Right. I mean, it's just the case that, you know, you go through the American public education system. You have no character education. You have no civics education. Yeah. You kind of exist in this formless void of social media and Kardashian shows. Right. Uh, I would just say for the record, private schools, at least in the D.C. area that I'm aware of, have their own. Well, sure. No, right. Problem. No. Yeah. I know. And, but it's the culture. Right. So it's not. Yeah. It's not limited. I've been just I went through public schools. Right. So right. I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing from my own experience. So it's not that surprising that this is where we've ended up. But, of course, that doesn't mean that conservatives should then just say, okay, fine, <laughs> you know, and throw up your hands and join the mob. I mean, that's, that's silly. And I think that is a real dividing line between the, the conservatives who want to be conservative intellectuals or interested in the ideas, you know, and, and the principles, like you say, and, also, and kind of just, I think, um, political activists or people who are uh, just animated by uh, – a not entirely unjustified a revulsion at uh, kind of the elites at the top of our society. Yeah, I, look, I mean, I, I have no problem blaming the left for getting us into this crappy situation on a lot of fronts. Um, my problem is with saying these guys are evil, these guys are terrible, these guys have horrible arguments, these guys want bad things, and since we can't defeat them we are basically going to internalize their logic. You know, that's the problem that I have. And, but no, look, I mean, we live in a very egalitarian, populist, anti-elite mode. But what's funny to me remains that when we say elites, we really mean a very narrow slice of what we're talking about, right? I mean, like, no one ever taught, no one ever says, I, you know, I got to get my appendix out. I really want to go to a surgeon in the meaty part of the bell curve, right? Um, they don't make movies about the guys, for the most part, the guys who make sure that the pallets of toilet paper make it to an aircraft carrier squadron, you know, 10,000 miles away, which is a hugely important part of what the military does. But no one wants to watch a movie about that. They want to watch guys, you know, with their, as Tommy Lee Jones says in Firebirds, with their heads and their hearts wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice, right? I mean, they want to they want to see someone kill somebody, and um, and so from the military to medicine uh, to sports, you know, we extol and lionize elites. It is only when the elites sort of. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so fascinating, the creeping corruption of this anti-elitism into the NFL, right? Because um, historically, sports is supposed to be the safe harbor from all of this political stuff. And then, in, in, in part, it's a sort of a pas de deux of asininity, where you have rich football players acting as if the world should be, you know, craving their, their, their hot takes on everything. And then you have Donald Trump who takes the bait. And and takes their hot take seriously, and then you get into this absolute friggin' mess that we're in. But the anti-elitism thing is really talking about is is historically really just about a certain segment of the of the political elite and Hollywood, and it's spreading. And as one of the arguments of con- that conservatism used to hold up 
was a defense of elitism properly understood, right? The, you know, elitism, you know, uh, you know has, there's a rich tradition of saying that, you know, what, what elitism is is really, you know, the, there's a Jeffersonian argument about elitism, that it's, you know, we're going to cull the best from everywhere and, and promote them up. You know, there's the Aristotelian notions of elitism. Um, there's, you know, there was that wonderful book in defense of elitism. Um, and you cannot have a conservative movement that on the one hand has generic broadsides against elitism and at the same time say it's defending Western civilization. Because inherent to the argument for Western civilization is that some things are better than other things and that there is excellence that we can divine and realize through reason. And if you're going to say, well, elitism is terrible, well, then why are you talking to me about why you know, Western philosophy is better? Why are you talking to me about why Western classical music is better? Why are you talking to me about how anything in the West is better if elitism is bad? You know, um, and there's this riot of confusion on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be wrong to have a kind of a categorical anti-elitism. I think it, we have to specify um, kind of the elites one is critiquing. Who, who is specifying that? I mean, rhetorically, well, I mean, no I, I try to sometimes. <laughs> okay. But, but, you know. You got one? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I just I, I couldn't help thinking um, while you're saying that, though, and we recently had the Federalist Society Conference in yeah. Washington, D.C. And, you know, as I, I've often thought it was like one of the real legacies of this movement, the conservative movement we're discussing is the creation of a conservative legal class that did not exist yeah. at the beginning of this movement. In fact, it didn't even exist 40 years ago. It's right. really a creature of the 1980s. But. If there was anything that the founding editors of National Review aspired to, Buckley and Burnham in particular, it was the creation of a conservative counter-establishment. Right. So that's why NR was kind of admittedly intellectual. It was pitched, you know, Buckley's big words that he's famous for. It was pitched at elites. Right. It was meant to create a new elite to replace right. the progressive one that, the, that they disagreed with. We've lost sight of that. The conservatives made, uh, I think, a decision. I mean, not it wasn't conscious. But we decided a while back that instead of trying to replace the progressive or liberal elite, we would just create our own infrastructure, a uh, counter-establishment. Um, and that had its benefits. There's no question. I mean, that's why we have these great institutions that do do good work. But I also think it may have weakened the conservatives because we kind of got captured by our own priors in a way. Like we're right. having this conversation with ourselves that leads to kind of this categorical denunciation of elites, right. which is kind of silly, right? Um, and so I looked, to, I looked at things like the Federalist Society as basically the, the best conservatives have done in order to create this this new elite, this mm -hmm. one that can permeate actual, the actual institutions. And, I mean, we see that um, uh, with just the, the tremendous amount of judges and, and such. And, and also, of course, uh, the intellectual content that they're doing right. is the equal to anything you would read in the pages of, you know, the New York Review of Books or other uh, liberal intellectual journals that publish legal thought, right? So that's kind of, to me, the model of what we might want to do. Um, it's just a very difficult one in this climate to achieve. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, got, I was part of those original arguments in the 1990s and a very, very junior level. But 
there's a lot of that going on in the Weekly Standard. We need our own bohemian societies. One of the f- first half dozen pieces I wrote for the Wall Street Journal was criticizing, ironically, the new craze for uh, for cigars on the right. <laughs> um, and now that I'm a horrible cigar addict, it's kind of weird. But there was this whole sort of conservative cool thing after the contract with America that came around. and We're going to create our own institutions. We're going to create our own media centers and all the rest. And then Fox comes out of that argument a little bit and was cited by a lot of people. Um, and I always argued at the time, look, I love Hillsdale. I've taught at Hillsdale. You've taught at Hillsdale. You know, Hillsdale's great. But what the culture doesn't need are a bunch more Hillsdales. What we need is a bunch more conservatives at Harvard. Um, because if you actually want to capture back the culture, um, you know, your average orthodontist, accountant, uh, car, ma- you know, used car manager, normal middle class people anywhere in the country, um, they want to send their kid to Harvard, you know, and they know it's liberal, but they want the big H, right? Or, or Ivy League or whatever. And one of the things that conservatives seem to have totally forgotten in that whole debate is that just as you can't have a new old friend, you can't have a new old institution. And the brand names that these things carry and the idea that, oh, we're just going to cede the commanding heights of the culture. You know, we're just going to give the left Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Princeton so we can create, um, you know, some great little 1,200-person college in, 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 in the rural Midwest strikes me as insane. And it's great to have these places like, you know, like Hillsdale as monasteries were during the Dark Ages, that you can then let your forces march back and take back the continent. But you can't say, well, we're just going to have more places like that. You have to try and take back these institutions. And, you know, I love conservative magazines. I've read conservative magazines since I was a kid. I loved, by all means, more the merrier. But having more conservatives at the New York Times would have been a lot more useful in the 1990s than more conservative magazines. And... Um, but you, you, you pick your battles where you can. Um, I think that the, the, that this whole thing that the right has gotten itself into, starting with a lot of that stuff has basically been a cul-de-sac. And now you get this sort of, you know, and and, and there were some weird culprits in all of this. I mean, you know, there was, you know, Grover Norquist, I like Grover and Grover's an interesting, useful creature. Um, but he was talking about having, you know, we don't need to have anything to do with the creators of the welfare state, and we're going to have Nuremberg trials. Harvard graduate. Yeah. No, exactly. And and that's the part of the problem I have is that so much of this is, like, BS minstrel show crap. Like, like Bannon is a Goldman Sachs guy who made his fortune in Hollywood, went to Harvard Business School, and he's going to tell me he's got the, the, the truer sense of, the, of real America? I mean, it's just all a con. And um, it, it's what happens when you have this sort of the people have made their decision. I am their leader, so I must go with them. Kind of attitude, and it's the it's the and you saw it with the tea parties, where these it started out as this awesome organic emergent property, got sort of uh, hijacked by all of these hucksters and con artists and and you know guys who wanted to send you their emails to get you to you know do a ten dollar donation for the rest of your life for their cause because we're going to stick it to Mitch McConnell. And this, anyway, this stuff, I think, has to burn itself out because it can't, it's not a governing philosophy. It is not a majoritarian position. Um, people keep talking about um, Donald Trump as if he's like a hugely popular president and he's the most unpopular president in American, in the history of American polling. Um, you know, the other week, Trump came out and boasted 
that Rasmussen had him at 40% approval. And he said, this, this poll is so much more accurate than these other polls. Okay, well, that, that still puts you in one of the, most, one of the worst positions of any modern president. Um, and anyway, so I, we're, I'm rambling. And you know, I can get work. I, sometimes I get like John Belushi, you know, talking about the Irish <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. And but um, can I can I say something about the the dilemmas of of the counter institutions? And uh, one reason why it was such a good temptation that it cursed me is, you know, there's O'Sullivan's law, right? Right. That you know any institutions that's not explicitly conservative will become more progressive over time. Right. And so I think one one of the reasons why there was this move to create other institutions, counter institutions, was just the difficulty of actually having an impact in the more established ones right. that have been so increasingly progressive or even left. And then it also occurs to me that even as I extol the Federalist Society, and I really do, and, and the jurisprudence of originalism and original intent and such, another big conservative success, if you ask me over the last generation, has actually been slightly contrary to that, and that is homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And I do think the homeschooling movement, which started out of just some very, you know, simple regulatory changes in the Reagan presidency, has kind of ballooned now to yeah. you know, millions, uh, over a million kids who are being homeschooled. And, you know, th- there's the place, like, we're, we're pro-family, yeah. we're pro-home, and we have, the parents are able to exercise control over the curricula. And indeed, some of the best uh, stories are when you have homeschooled students who then go on to elite Yeah campuses, right? And so you kind of have that admixture of the, uh, is it populist or whatever? It, it's, 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 uh, it's against the predominant culture, uh, but also trying to kind of incorporate oneself into the dominant institutions. I mean, that might be a model. You yeah, know, if you have a homeschool kid who goes to Harvard and ends up being in the federal society and nominated to a bench, the bench by a Republican president, I'd say, you know what, that that's a pretty good model for conservatives. No, I agree. Um, it's it's funny you bring decades. this up because did you actually do the two-week class thing that you taught at Hillsborough? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, when I did that, and this was back when apparently the housing for visiting instructors is much better. I was in the Charles Manson bungalow. The one that almost, I just learned, almost killed Victor Davis Hanson. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and that the basement really did look like the set from a Saw movie. Um uh, They've torn that house down, apparently. I, I think they should then salt the earth. But Hillsdale has, I don't I think it's 11% or 9%. It has this really disproportionate number of homeschooled kids. And uh, one of the things I was sort of fascinated by was the diversity of models for homeschooling. It's not just mom or dad at the kitchen table with a textbook teaching math. It's like you have this whole infrastructure of businesses that cater to this and there are different ways to do it where kids go visiting from different homes to different homes and there are even sports leagues and all this kind of stuff. And so you saw a weird variety of different kinds of homeschooled kids. But one of the advantages that Hillsdale has is is my theory. Um, It's not entirely uninformed, but it's just my theory, is that there is a bias against homeschool kids in uh, among elite, other elite universities and so Hillsdale ends up getting these disproportionately smart kids with great SAT scores precisely because of this sort of bigotry against them at, at compar- comparably good schools. And um, so they get to pick up sort of at a discount um, some of these kids, which is kind of interesting. On the constitutional stuff, I mean, look, I always talk about the Federalist Society. Anyone who says things have only gotten worse, conservatives only lose, right? This is one of the the new sort of 
narratives that that the Bananistas and and everybody has internalized is that conservatism, the conservatism always loses everything. And that's what, what have we, we conserved? Right. What have we conserved? What I heard at Hillsdale recently. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 You hear a lot of it from the Hillsdale crowd these days, and um, and there's a chunk of it in the the, the Claremont crowd as well. Um, one day we'll do a podcast just on that. But the Federal Society, you know. It wasn't until Steve Hayward, I think, makes this point. It wasn't until Reagan gave some speech in like 76 saying we need to get back to judges who actually interpret the Constitution as it was written, as it was understood, blah, 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 blah. Um, No Republican presidential candidate had talked about any of that kind of stuff ever, you know, since, you know, before TR, essentially. It was just simply taken for granted that you put guys with good legal resumes on the bench and... You know, sometimes the Republicans will be more liberal than the liberals and, you know, or the the Democrats. And it's just one of those things. It's built into the system. The living constitution is what it is, you know. And it was Reagan who starts this. And then the Federal Society comes out of that when Reagan, you know, gets elected. And the Supreme Court is vastly more conservative, originalist. The courts are vastly more conservative and originalist um, than they were 40 years ago. The problem is that the culture isn't. And so the, the liberals who get on are much more left-wing than they used to be um, and are much less devoted even to paying lip service to the text. But it just points to the fact that you can make progress, that things can get better, that there are improvements. But conservatives have sort of internalized this idea. It's sort of like the way liberals have internalized the idea the environment has only gotten worse in America. You know, the environment is vastly cleaner than it's been in 150 years um, because part of their whole idea, this sort of Rousseauian idea of civilization is decay, it has to be true that the environment's getting worse. Um, conservatives have their own sort of cringy Rousseauian grumpiness, which is, you know, the culture's the, the culture's always getting worse, right? And I can, you know, I can point to lots of things in the culture that culture's better today than it was forty years ago. I can also point to lots of things in the culture where it's worse. Any big, complicated phenomena is going to have examples that confirm a thesis and 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 refute it. Anyway, we should probably get off some of this stuff a uh, couple quick questions sure. towards the end first of all do you have any apologies to make for for employing sunny bunch there's one regret of my life jonah it's that i hired sunny bunch as the first employee of the free beacon and you know i'm just con- so consumed by guilt of what would happen if i let him go yeah. because you know he he's completely unemployable yeah you know skills and uh you know, I he's got a wife and child. I don't want to consign them to the, you know, skid row. So that's why he's there. But, yeah, I have to live with the consequences of that error every day of my life. It's interesting that you put it that way because I would have thought you were going to go in a completely opposite way and say you can't fire him because sort of like the Andromeda strain virus, at least at the Free Beacon, you can constrain him. And if you set him free out there... You know, the virus would just spread. People would be defending science fiction genocide everywhere. Um, yeah. I mean, but of course, you know, he has the tools of his uh, he has a social media like Donald Trump. And, um, you know, he's been able to kind of weaponize social media. So true. it's really just out. It's really out of loyalty to his loved ones that I, uh, I keep him there. You don't want- as far as I'm concerned, the damage is already done. That's fair. You don't want to punish the children. <laughs> Never. No, yeah. I'm, I'm pro-child. Okay, and so another gripey question. Was the title Washington Free Beacon a deliberate appeal to William F. Buckley? 
Is this a dog whistle of some kind? I would not say it was deliberate. Uh-huh. I recognized pretty early on after we decided the names that the initials are problematic. Or my hero. No, I mean not problematic for me. I, I you know, I, I want to reference Buckley, bring him back into the conversation anytime I can. I, was, I mean, I, now as far as intellectual property law is concerned, you know, I don't know that. Yeah, you that can't make initials. Be. Yeah, but it's just I got to tell you, in the early days of the. Washington Free Beacon, which in your Twitter handles WFB, right? You know, and your, um, you know, you'd see stuff like WFB uh, claims Sbarro is the best pizza in New York, and you're like, dear God, what's happening? Right, you know? what's happening to his legacy? But again, yeah. that just goes back to the Sunny Bunch problem. Exactly. Well, now I have what to doesn't? Think, I happen to think Buckley would have been fine with our love of, say, Kate Upton. I don't think that's you know, probably right. Right. That's probably so right. that's that association is it's really again. It's really just Sonny Bunch that's the problem. Yeah. Well, but what isn't that true of? Um, okay. So one question I've asked almost every single guest, um, I think every single guest, is what is one thing, and you've heard me ask these people so I don't have to reprise all the previous answers, um, what is the one thing that would that either surprised you about Washington coming here or would most surprise people outside of Washington of what about what their conceptions of the place are like? Well, I'm from the Washington area. I grew up in um, Fairfax County, Virginia. Uh-huh. So let's say I, I never really came here. I kind of came home after uh, four years in New York City. As you can tell, I'm really connected to Middle America. Yes. Um, I'd say the lovely overalls, thing, by the way. I'd say the one thing that would surprise people about DC is I got this conversation a lot, uh, or this question a lot about. Uh, half a dozen years ago when House of Cards just came on. Yeah. And it was like, was it really, is DC really like House of Cards? And I would say, and I, you know, no, it's like Veep. Right. I mean, that's the thing that people need to understand about Washington is it's a bunch of clueless, incompetent people trying to posture for self-aggrandizement. Right. Um, I th- now, I think weirdly people are more and more coming to that conclusion based on the last eight months of what's the news out of D.C. But um, I, I would say that w- that still surprised people even up to a few years ago. There was a sense among people I'd meet, you know, don't live around here and kind of follow politics only remotely or disinterestedly. You know, they, they thought that somehow Kevin Spacey was running around pushing people on, off the metro tracks and that's instead he was doing something very different. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. No, it's funny. Uh, your your answer is very much what Yuval's answer was, which was nobody knows what they're doing, right? And this idea that um, there's this grand plan and that people can think ten moves ahead just is a complete you know misunderstanding of how Washington works. Everyone does their press releases. Everyone has this plan about how to roll out of an idea or a campaign or whatever's going to be. And then the second it hits the reality of events, it's just like no one knows what they're doing. No one's in charge. I think that's a great thing. That's proof that we live in a democracy. Um, in Putin's Russia, you can talk about how, you know, everything's going according to Putin's plan and it has some macabre relevance and plausibility to it. It is funny how Trump, you know, when, when Trump talks about Putin, you know, and all that stuff, well, we kill people too. And he wants, he kind of wants to believe that we're a house of cards kind of power and because he believes that it makes him more veepish right <laughs> um, um but uh anyway there's that and um 
we didn't get into as much. I wanted to do, I had this idea of doing a whole glossary of conservative yeah. things to explain to people what these stupid labels are that we drop, and I didn't get into it. Maybe I'll put it in the intro. But um, I want to thank you for coming. Um, I want to thank you for keeping Sunny Bunch relatively constrained. It's, it's hard. Um, if you do a GoFundMe site where we can... Um, Employ Sunny Bunch elsewhere? No, no, no. Just oh. promise to take care of his kids. Oh. <laughs> um, then, you know, we don't have to worry about what happens to him when, when you justifiably fire him. Um, and I uh, hope to have you back on sometime soon. That would be great. I, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Jonah. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, Matt uh, Continetti has left the building. And uh, if you stuck it out, I hope you found that interesting. Um, one of the things... I always promised I would do on this is get kind of into the weeds on the nerdy stuff about the things I'm interested in. There will be future podcasts where I get nerdy about dogs and evolution and other stuff that I think is interesting. Jack, since you are a graduate of Hillsdale College, did I say anything that will get me in trouble with my friends in, in Michigan? Uh, well, am I truly qualified to speak on that? I, I will say that uh, when either you or Matt Cottonetti was talking about a Homeschool student who then goes to Yale Law School and gets appointed to the federal judiciary. Uh, I know, I know of a specific person who is like two thirds of the way there. <laughs> so uh, Hillsdale is producing that that excellent sort of hybrid of the within in but not of culture model of you go to Hillsdale but then you also go to Yale. So it it does good work. I'm a notable exception to that, of course. Uh, uh, that's I'm, I'm glad you said it, but you know. <laughs> But there is one thing about Hillsdale that was curious to me: the the guest residents. I mean, I I know you've been complaining about that for years, and then it was actually that was where we first met, not at the house, but in the class of yours that I took. Right. Um, the time travel repetition finally worked out uh, that I ended up in there. But you you said in the podcast that or with, with Cottonetti that it all, the house almost killed Victor Davis Hanson. How did that happen? <laughs> If memory serves, and I'm open to correction about this, uh, Victor, who teaches often at Hillsdale, being an actual scholar, professor type, was put up in there and got some kind of really bad mold poisoning, Oh, <laughs> and which does not shock me in the least. I mean, Hillsdale's got this beautiful campus. I'm not deriding it. I've done a lot of stuff for Hillsdale. Uh, my friend Scott Hall, inventor of the uh, Scott Hall Martini, which I discussed on the Andy Ferguson podcast. Is a, is a dear friend of mine. But it's just bizarre that they would put up people in this, this as what I've been calling for years, the Charles Manson bungalow. Oddly on the news now that Charles Manson just died. But it was just this really run-down shack. And although when I went out there, I went out there with Zoe, my Carolina dog, um, when she was still puppyish. And uh, she loved it because it smelt like a dog den in a lot of ways and um and there were dead rabbits in the backyard that she could carry around like trophies but uh yeah no and so anyway victor apparently got some bad i think mold infection in his lungs and he really got messed up for it and i was told by somebody at the newspaper um and i i could have sworn it had been you but i guess it was not um that whenever you did an interview with victor davis hansen you weren't allowed to ask him how are his accommodations or anything like that because it would just dominate the rest of the interview uh well way to way to uncover the, the hidden secrets that make the collegian uh, run thanks a lot yeah well um the uh uh but my understanding and one of the sources of my bitterness is that 
I think in part due to my complaints, they've changed that policy. And like when James Rosen, our, my friend from Fox News, he went and taught a class out there for a couple of weeks. And they put him, he was sending me pictures of this just fantastic townhouse in town that he was living in, you know, and it had all these great amenities. And uh, meanwhile, the place I stayed in, you know, it just, it, it was like a Blair Witch Project kind of thing. But anyway, that's the answer to that question. I mean, no disrespect to Hillsdale. We love Hillsdale. Um, Send your kids to Hillsdale. Give money to Hillsdale. We're, they're not even paying us for this. Yeah, no, I should probably stop right there. Oh, but speaking of money, you'll notice that we didn't have an ad in this this podcast because it was not scheduled for the week of Thanksgiving. Um, but I do want to tell listeners that if you feel so inclined and you're shopping at Casper or at Tripping or of any of these websites that have um, advertised um, on this, or any of these companies that advertised on this podcast, please still use the uh, code word DINGO because uh, it'll still go to the end of year tally um, for this podcast and hopefully increase our, increase our chances for better and more advertising. Other than that, I don't have too much to report. I know some people did not like my throwing shade at those really adorable, great, quaint, cute little podcasts at Commentary Magazine Aww. and the Weekly Substandard, and I kind of agree. It got, it got a little ugly on Twitter, and it was a bad look for me um, to punch down like that. I think, <laughs> I think the Commentary Podcast is great. I think the Weekly Stub, Substandard podcast is great for some people. I also want to apologize to Jonathan Last. Uh, I went on that tirade about the, China, the Asian buffet place in Virginia, thinking the entire time it had been Jonathan Last, boring his listeners to death with that conversation. It turns out it was, in fact, Sonny Bunch. It's just that on the podcast, they are auditory doppelgangers and very hard to tell apart. It's not so much the case in real life. But anyway... I, I slandered Jonathan last, and I feel sorry about that. Um, and other than that, I want everyone to have a great Thanksgiving. If you have any questions or comments or concerns, do you think I should do more geeky conservative stuff on the podcast? Less. Please let me know at remnant. The remnant pod. The remnant pod at gmail.com. The remnant pod at gmail.com. Please keep up with the reviews. Please subscribe. Eat a lot of turkey. Um, have a great Thanksgiving. And I'll hopefully quote-unquote, figuratively see you next week. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.